Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Excellent. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Ooh, yeah. There's the energy. I'm Justin Burke, joined tonight with Dr. Brian Ward and Dr. Cole Paparicos. How'd I do, Cole? Oh, you crushed that pronunciation. I don't believe I did for a second, but... Uh, you're, Greek. you're pretty much Greek. You're, you're automatically uh, Greek now. Honorary, amazing. Uh, what a great episode. You guys put together a very strong part two of overuse injuries. We dove into upper extremities and pulled in some themes from our past episode, which if people didn't listen to, they can go back and check it out. But tonight, we're talking about overuse injuries with Dr. Alyssa Conde. Once again, she's returning to tell us about upper extremities overuse imaging. Before we go into that, hey, Cole, do you mind telling us about our show? Sure, sure. We are the pediatric medicine podcast we interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls practice changing knowledge and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine we are so happy to have dr condi back in the show as a reminder Alyssa condi is a pediatric sports medicine physician in cincinnati she has particular interests in caring for young athletes with very special interests in gymnastics which you'll hear about more a little bit later given her previous background as a competitive gymnast herself She has four years of professional clinical experience in pediatric sports medicine as a team physician on the sidelines of high school, club, and collegiate sporting events. Our conversation shouldered the entire upper extremity, including what to expect in that gymnast's wrists, why pitch counts are so important, and how to order that pesky into the armpit x-ray view of the shoulder. I want to get started because we have a long list of questions. All right, Justin, I've got to hand it to you. (laughs) Great stuff. And we're back on air. Alyssa Condi, part two. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. It was so much fun the first time. I had to do it again. Like an overuse injury, we're just continuing to use the podcast as a... That's not a great metaphor, and it sounds bad. So we'll... we'll, But uh, not at all. And we can spin that into, as with all overuse injuries, the cure is for us to just stop growing. But we're still growing. We're we're still still growing growing. out here. So it's part of life to learn. There is no rain, no flowers, you know, exactly. You you have some injuries sometimes. And the important thing is just pushing through the pain and not seeking medical advice. I think that's 100% exactly what we would recommend. (laughs) Our our starting uh, episode episode over. (laughs) Please come and see us. We love to see our athletes. Um, yeah, but no, we are uh, very excited to to have you for this part two episode of overuse injuries, talking about sports medicine, sports injuries. For the people that maybe missed the first episode or have slept since then, can you just remind us a little bit about your background, where you are, who you are, so yeah. our guests can feel like we're all friends? Uh, so I am a pediatric sports medicine physician over at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Uh, I did my, like I said, my primary residency and training in pediatrics and then an extra year of training for fellowship in sports medicine right here at CCHMC. 
And then I currently work as a physician faculty. I'm the associate program director for our fellows. And I also do a lot of sporting events and coverage for local high schools, a local college at Miami University, a Division I college, and some clubs. Uh, my passion, as some of you may have heard in the first episode, was gymnastics. It is my kind of passion for sport, but I do love and thoroughly enjoy covering any and all sports. And we've got football coming up, so that's a that's another you know, big time of the year for us. And I'm excited and looking forward to what the season's going to bring. I feel like the biggest perk of of the sports medicine fellowship is like the opportunity to go to sporting events, get courtside sideline tickets to all diverse sports of, of all levels. Usually the front row seat. It's essentially what it is. Yeah, you are, you know, and, and once you present yourself to an event as medical staff, it's, you know what I mean? It's it's top notch priority for care and attention. And so we get, you know, every every best seat that we're interested in as far as what it what it is for best access for our players, whether that is truly courtside or, you know, right on the sideline on the benches, wherever we need to be. We're accommodated because they know how important it is and the impact we make, you know, during those events. And like I said last time, we're fortunate that most of the time there aren't a lot of, you know, big injuries or big things we have to address, you know, right during game time. We're there for emergencies. And most of the time we just get to enjoy watching sports. So I have an important question. Yeah. When you are on the sideline, you're working, you are there to provide um pretty useful and sometimes intense medical services. But in those downtimes, are you like allowed to cheer for your team? If you're mm. there for both sides, do you have to cheer? What's the word? Like cheer oh, for both sides? Right, be right. Impartial? Like be be politically correct. Uh, no. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a team, like I'm totally good to support my team and will more oftentimes than not wear some type of gear that represents that I am affiliated or associated with this group or this team. And it is totally appropriate within reason as a medical professional that you can cheer and support your athletes. You can disagree with some of the calls or certain things, but just be very careful because a lot of these things are posted on TV or they're covered by some covered by some type of media. And so you want to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward when you're doing that. There have been, you know, some instances where perhaps either, you know, non-athletes, non-coaches, or folks who are just either invited or spending time on the sideline that aren't even medical professionals either can, you know, can get a little worked up. And so you have to be careful because sometimes that can cost your team in, uh, you know, penalties and things like that. So you just have to be very cautious, but it, it is appropriate and acceptable for you to cheer on your athletes and applaud them. And, you know, a lot of times I'm doing a lot of fist bumps or, you know, like, congratulating guys as they're walking off a field for a great play, usually for football. And, you know, they're excited because, you know, they see that that we're watching and that we're paying attention to them too. And so it's always a great time when your team is doing really well. And, you know, you get the opportunity to maybe make some impact and picking up by the bootstraps if they're, you know, if they're down or they're behind uh, because you build those relationships when you're taking care of them in the training room. So it's a lot of fun to be able to do that. I'll have some athletes that just kind of hobble off the field 
sit back on the bench and they don't really say anything or look at anyone and try to hide it, you know, and, and see if nobody's going to approach them. And usually I'm probably one of the smaller people on the sideline. So I tend to see kind of between the cracks and kind of in between elbows of football players, you know, standing side by side. So I'll walk over to them usually and kind of ask and make sure they're okay. And they'll tell me, yeah, I'm all right, doc, I'll, I'll be good. And, you know, just a few minutes later, they're walking behind me, tap me on the shoulder and be like, actually, I think I tweaked my ankle, you know, I, I got rolled up on, do you think you could take a look at it, you know, and, and am I good to go? Am I, can I go back? So, you know, and that's, that's just from time they see me on the sideline. I'm, I'm in the training room. I'm there during their rehab and recovery, that kind of thing. And so they, they, it's really awesome because, you know, never in a million years would, I think I have a repertoire of, you know, a hundred plus large football players, you know, seeking my advice or as a confidant, you know, for their care. And I, I love it. I think it's, it's such a cool and unique aspect to the things that we get to do. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Before we move on to our case, I have to tell you about an amazing offer available to our listeners. So we were thinking, with the busy fall season already in swing, you might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals for busy days in the hospital. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. So adjust your stride this auto without missing a step. Choose from over 34 weekly, flavor-packed, fresh, never-frozen meals ready to eat in two minutes. I tried the delicious factor meals and found them almost too easy. I wanted to prolong my lunch break even longer. They also offer different meal options, including Gourmet Plus, Lunch to Go, Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Vegan and Veggie, which was my personal favorite. And if you want to learn even more, check out factormeals.com for those detailed descriptions. But better yet, for all our Cribsider listeners out there, Factor is offering you a discount. So head to factormeals.com slash cribsiders50 and use code cribsiders50 to get 50% off. That's code CRIBSIDERS50 at factormeals.com slash CRIBSIDERS50 to get that 50% off. Let's get started. Uh, Cole, do you want to to give us our first case? Awesome. So your first case from Cashlack Children's Sports Medicine Clinic is a 12-year-old level 9 gymnast who presents to your clinic with right dorsal wrist pain. She began to have wrist pain two months ago, and at that time it was intermittent, only occurred maybe once or twice a week, but now she has pain every single practice. It's worse with weight-bearing, any kind of weight-bearing, through her wrists, through her fingers, and it's really bad after practice is done. She's noticed some mild swelling, but denies any acute trauma. Her exam shows some tenderness to palpation on the dorsum of her wrist, and the pain can be reproduced with wrist extension. She can't do a push-up because of how bad the pain is in that right wrist. So Alyssa, where do you start with wrist pain? What's your general approach? Yeah, that's a good question, Cole. So I I think like any other joint, I have a very similar approach. It's just a, a different area of the body. So a lot of what you mentioned starts with the history. And like I've mentioned before, 90 to 95% of you know what I think could be going on, I can gather just from history alone. So I pay attention to the chronicity of kind of what's going on with their pain. Is it acute? Did they have a fall? Uh, is it subacute? Is it something that's potentially been going on just for a few weeks? Or is this something way more chronic or even recurring? And then I look at potentially what activities are doing. So what type of sport or what activity causes some of the pain? And then looking at this particular athlete training hours. So again, this is my wheelhouse. This is a competitive gymnast, high level for her age, certainly. And so I know just right off the bat, I know she's 
training a lot and doing a lot of activities and potentially is at really high risk for overuse type of injuries. The hand and the wrist can be tricky because a lot of the structures overlap in that joint. And so potentially even actually going up to the elbow, uh, a lot of the muscle structures that drive motion of the hand and wrist actually start at the elbow and that's where they originate. And so potentially you have to be super considerate of the actual anatomy and the structures. And that's something that I always try to base my exam and approach for these, knowing that, hey, they might be complaining of some tenderness over the distal radial side of the wrist, but on top of a bone, what else lives in that area and where does it originate or, you know, where does it insert at and what are some things that can drive my exam specifically? Because that's what's going to give me maybe that last five to 10% of potentially what the diagnosis is, or at least a good proper differential. And then potentially some things that might be a little more common, but not necessarily unique to the wrist would be mechanical symptoms. So like popping, lots of people, their wrists pop, whether it's painful or not. And are they getting any like neurologic symptoms? So numbness, tingling, we'll find, you know, a lot of athletes and patients complain of some of these neurologic symptoms. And that could indicate you know, some impingement or compression more distally in the joint where they're maybe overusing that, or is it maybe coming from something more central or kind of more up through the, perhaps like the brachial plexus or the cervical spine or something like that. And so you need to consider, especially in a, in a weight bearing overhead athlete, these mechanics are super important and can drive your consideration for how to evaluate for wrist pain. So what are some of those things that you're you're looking for, you know, that whether it's the popping or the nerve pain, what's the broad differential? Because, you know, a simpleton primary care doc like me is hearing, you know, wrist pain that's gotten worse in wrist pain that's gotten worse with use. This is probably a tendonitis or maybe, you know, a muscle strain of a muscle that I, I don't remember exactly what it's called, hanged out for a while. What is someone like you who's in a more sophisticated place? really thinking about as they're they're getting the history and doing an exam. Yeah, so what drives a lot of my differential is kind of how I organize it and what are the anatomy structures that live there. So I usually kind of have four major groups or categories that I think about. Bone is one of them. And so what are potentially the bone issues that could occur in this area? This is a 12-year-old, so she we know she has some open growth plates. And so is there potentially some stress through the growth plate? Is there maybe a fracture uh, through there? They didn't maybe realize they did something that could have caused a more acute injury. And this has been kind of festering now for a few months. Is there potentially a muscle or a tendon issue that can be quite common, especially in a gymnast or an athlete that does a lot of weight bearing skills? So I agree. I always think about some uh, muscle strain, tendonitis. The wrist is unique and has some defined compartments where the tendons travel through and sometimes they can overlap and cause something called intersection syndrome, which is unique to like the wrist and the forearm compared to some of the other parts of the body. And that can be really common uh, depending on the type of activities or skills that can be done. And I see this quite frequent in gymnastics. The other thing would be ligaments. Like are there other ligaments or other soft tissue structures that are getting pinched or uh, stretched or potentially is there a tear or something like that. And then lastly would be like cartilage. Um, 
the because of the age of the athlete, there is a lot more cartilage than kind of true what we know to be true osseous bone. And so that can sometimes play a role in some of the pain, less so maybe in the wrist, but, you know, potentially in like the elbow or other areas where they're doing some high impact or weight bearing, they can soften that cartilage and predispose themselves to some type of osteochondral lesion or even osteochondritis desiccans. That's really common in the elbow, especially in a gymnast. We might see that quite a bit. So that's kind of how I organize my thoughts about what anatomical structure lives in the area where they're complaining of pain, and then how can I branch out from those different categories to see what makes the most sense and see if my exam can make sense of some of that as well. And how are you approached? So, you know, can you walk us through what would be consistent with, you know, acute tendonitis as opposed to a ligamental injury, as opposed to a mild stress fracture or um, one of these others uh, uh, less common, but things you don't want to miss? Yeah. So tenderness is pretty nonspecific, right? So you can kind of press on any kind of spot and that doesn't really illuminate too much, right? Because a lot of structures can overlap like these ligaments, these tendons and the bone. So it's difficult sometimes to separate um, those individual pieces or those structures. But for me, a lot of times, um, in addition to the tenderness that they might have, what's their motion looking like? Sometimes motion can indicate more of either a bony injury or a tendinous injury. Some resisted motion or resisted strength could also indicate like if the athlete has no pain with resisted thumb abduction, does that mean that this is maybe more bone than tendon because I'm actively activating the muscle and resisting some motion to it, which in a tendonitis or a tendinopathy type case, we may find that that is a little bit more painful because they're actively, you know, recruiting those muscle fibers and resisting and causing some pain over that respective area. And then ligaments usually, although this can be a little bit hard, this takes a lot of time and practice uh, and even, you know, someone who's been in practice for a while, some laxity. So determining some laxity between some of the very small ligaments within the hand can be really challenging just because the, even though the muscles are also small compared to other muscles in the body, they tend to overpower those ligament structures. And so sometimes you just may not get, um, you know, some of the minor ligament injuries or strains, you know, or sprains in an exam. Uh, you'll know the obvious ones. <laughs> if you if you feel like a massive click or clunk in like a wrist or a hand, you know that, that there's a ligament injury and potentially even some um, almost like necrosis or collapse within the bone structures. And that's already really far gone. Um, but some of the minor stuff can be really tricky, e even for someone who's seasoned. And so if there's a concern for a potential ligament injury, sometimes that may provoke more imaging sooner rather than later, depending on kind of what the concern is or what we're trying to get back to. You jumped over this big string of words there that I just, I just might not know. The osteochondritis Dessa what? I, what Dessa is that? Should I, is this remedial? Should I know that? <laughs> it's, it's very specific to the sports and orthopedic world. Essentially, what happens is there's a softening of the cartilage, the articular cartilage of certain joints. These are found really commonly in the ankle, the knee, the elbow. That's what we see more commonly. And essentially with the softening, there's no 
kind of exact or sure mechanism or etiology for why this happens. There's many thoughts out there. It could be, you know, some undervascularization in some of these kids that are growing and developing. It could be from overuse or high impact inactivity in an area, again, that doesn't quite get the vascular blood supply that's needed. And it's usually just more of a combination of a perfect storm that you get some softening of this cartilage and so much so that it could even kind of rip or tear and it causes an impact on the underlying bone. And so essentially you'll find, you know, folks like Dr. Cole and myself, when we talk to patients about what our differential is or what we worry about or what we're looking for, especially when we get radiographs, is that it looks like the bone is crumbling kind of underneath in a specific spot. It looks like almost like a pothole over like a surface of the bone. And that's something that is um, is really easy to capture when you screen with an x-ray. And potentially, if you do see something like this, some further imaging may be warranted. But this is something that if you do see an abnormality to the surface of the, like the articular surface of some of these bones, it's worthwhile to evaluate further. And it's hard in the age group where it happens most commonly because it could just be purely developmental. And so there are plenty of times that we worry about osseous abnormality on a film and are provided a lot of reassurance with an MRI where the radiologist can tell us, hey, it's a developmental variant. Things are going okay. You can just kind of, you know, treat your patient as you normally would and provide some reassurance versus a suggestion for referral for orthopedic surgery or something like that where they need to kind of step in and manage this for us. Yeah. So as far as imaging goes, x-ray is a great place to start uh, for an athlete who has unilateral type pain. And in this athlete, they certainly do. If there's tenderness over a bone landmark, that's super worthwhile to evaluate and pursue. Again, difficult. So you're, you're probably more often than not going to find some tenderness over a bony landmark that prompts you to be considerate of some imaging. Usually when an athlete, especially in this case, presents to my clinic and I'm thinking I need to order or want to order some imaging, I start with a two-view x-ray, typically an AP view, anterior-posterior view, and a lateral view. And so this allows me some opportunity to look at the distal forearm specifically, where the radius and ulna meet that more proximal row of carpal bones to evaluate for any physeal, which is growth plate injury, and potentially any other causes or fractures or things that could have presented that are, you know, presenting in a certain way to suggest bone injury. In an athlete who presents with a concern for what this athlete has, which is in medical terminology, distal radial epiphysiolysis, but in layman's terms, we call this lovingly gymnast wrist. And so when an athlete presents with this, essentially what you're going to find or what you see on the radiograph is widening and essentially sclerosis of the growth plate. So it almost looks, I describe it as moth eaten. So it looks like something is kind of eating away at the physis. It's not clear or precise. And that is a concern for overuse and stress of the growth plate. And the reason we get worried about this is if there's too much stress, then you can have premature closure of the growth plate and that can alter the growth not only of the distal radius, but in its partner, the ulna. 
and how they interact and what the appropriate levels of those bones are as they interact with the proximal carpal bones and the soft tissue structures that fall in between. And so essentially you get a disconnect where the ulna outgrows the radius and you end up causing more long-term issues and chronic pain in these athletes. It's very reasonable to obtain additional imaging in a high-level competitive gymnast who may be suffering from more chronic pain or recurrent episodes of gymnast wrist. And essentially what you would look for on the MRI is a term called physeal bridging, which is essentially what it sounds like. There's potentially some of these osseous structures that are forming these bridges with across the physis to suggest premature closure. And that becomes a problem and something you need to monitor for, because if that does happen in potentially more than 50% of the growth plate, then essentially you need to consider a surgery and a procedure in order to fix that or correct that so that they're not having some long-term issues. So MRI is very reasonable. It also helps me kind of rule out or see if there's any concurrent soft tissue things that may be overlapping as well if they're not improving with the typical kind of treatment plan or things I would expect for their recovery. I think knowing a diagnosis and then uh, going back and these are the imaging findings is super helpful. That being said, I'd say, you know, for a patient like this, you mentioned, you know, the bony landmark tenderness, you know, I feel like you can, you can find a bone in a, in a place that's tender and probably justify imaging. And I often don't, and maybe I should, you know, I think in primary care, it's often trying to avoid unnecessary imaging in children, you know, even x-rays. And so, I think a lot of us, our physical exam finding that warrants imaging is it didn't go away for, you know, after a couple of weeks. Which is a reasonable approach. Absolutely. Excellent. And sometimes we will, sometimes we will do that. You know, a lot of us try to dig deep into our primary care roots too in pediatrics and, you know, think about, is this something I actually need to image? And so sometimes setting some hard and fast rules for yourself in a busy sports clinic, you know, an athlete who presents with more than six weeks of joint pain, totally. you know, unilateral joint pain is one of my like hard and fast. There was trauma at some point, maybe not the cause of the more recent pain, but maybe they had trauma at some point. I'll never forget. I had an athlete, a basketball player fell on the court and came in eight months later with wrist pain and abnormal wrist motion and had an, an old poorly fused scaphoid fracture. So it's just one of those things like you have to kind of just hear what they're trying to tell you and see, but setting up some of those like, you know, tried conservative treatment, didn't get better, need some imaging, uh, has had unilateral pain, you know, for more than six weeks, at some point experienced trauma or recently experienced trauma, you know, to that joint could be some nice quick guidelines for you to kind of reach for where you know, because you know, you have your ankle Ottawa rules and things like that, that are helpful and specific per joint, but not every joint has that. So it's really just kind of dependent. I think the script give us a lot of clues that this is a, and again, I know we'll talk about this a little bit more, but this is a 12 year old level nine. Level nine is almost Almost as, level 10. As the, yeah, it's almost the top, yeah. um, as high as you can go. Eight. And at 12 yeah. years, better than that's a eight. lot. That's a lot of training for these athletes. And like I said, we'll go over some of the breakdown for that because I think it's super interesting and fascinating to talk about. And the gymnasts get really excited when you know <laughs> what, what they're talking about and what that means. So that makes me really happy. That was a big clue for me. So if I, if I knew nothing else and hadn't examined them, that 
that was on that was Got on it. my list of things to accomplish that visit. The high chronicity, the high level of action, and then you know specifically um, focal tenderness are exactly. all things that are at least warranting X-ray imaging. And then the the imaging on the X-ray can sometimes point to the next level imaging. It sounds like is that a safe teach back? Is that reasonable? If needed, absolutely. That is safe. Yeah, that's a good good way to think about it that way. And usually that's where we stop is just an X-ray image, and we can kind of guide and. We'll do our typical treatment plan and we can always consider some repeat imaging. Radiographs are tricky because there's usually a delay as far as, you know, a lot of parents will come in and ask, all right, do we need to repeat the x-ray to see if this is improved or gone or resolved? And usually I tell them that's that's hard to, you know, make that decision. And usually we go clinically. So if there, unless there's some indication or a concern for either uh, improperly healing fracture or this is progressing and not improving, I usually don't repeat any imaging and I go just based off of clinical exam and their progression. A lot of times if I have some returners that tell me, hey doc, I got better for a little while, but it came back, that's when I actually jump to more specialized imaging like an MRI. And that can give me some information as far as, again, looking at the the depth of the sclerosis at the physis and things. And is there early bridging? Are there some other things at play that maybe are not related to the growth plate at all? So that that's helpful in differentiating which types of images. And if you're ever considering as a primary care provider out in the community, hey, this we tried this and this isn't getting better. It's time to go send them to our sports specialist and see what what input they have. So, and do I? So I heard MRI. I love MRIs, but I'm usually not ordering those in my primary care panel. But the X-ray is one. Especially you mentioned like there are situations like where your auto rules or you're ticking off all the boxes. I feel very comfortable ordering an X-ray for that. For the wrist in particular. Should I be comfortable ordering an x-ray and then sending them at the same time? Would you prefer to just order your own x-ray because you have something special that you do with it? That's a really great question, Brian. Should I order an x-ray and ask the radiologist to help me interpret it and then refer? Right. No, I would say a wrist is pretty a pretty safe standard set of images that you can comfortably go ahead and order. I will argue there are certain joints that require certain specialty views or certain things that I would worry about and would prefer to image them myself. If that's not the case, I supplement, you know, what potentially is missing in the series. So it's never, you know, it's a no harm, no foul situation. And I just explained to the families, this is kind of a standard, what was done by your primary care provider or the ER or the urgent care. I like to take a look at these specialty views just to kind of, because I'm suspicious for this particular thing. And I would like to see and rule that out. Um, so usually though, a wrist, a two view wrist is a good, uh, safe bet. And I would say if you have pediatric radiologists or somebody within your system with pediatric expertise, that is helpful. We usually have, uh, for example, some patients who visit our other, you know, medical systems or other hospitals or urgent cares and get some imaging and the families come back to me and say, well, they told me there was not a break or there was no fracture. But a lot of these radio adult radiologists or adult providers don't specifically look or pay particular attention to the physis or the growth plate. And so that's where potentially my input or my review would come in, come in handy or come in place. And so that is part of 
what I'm either reviewing with them from outside imaging and kind of just clarifying and giving my input. I think a wrist is a safe set of views and things that you as a primary care provider can initiate. And if it's read as normal or you're concerned about a growth plate injury, then certainly send them to uh, your friendly sports or orthopedic specialist to review and just get their input or their insight and see if there are some other things we can do to improve pain. And then when talking about MRI, if the if the radiograph imaging is normal, can we talk about the pathologies that might have normal radiographs but still might warrant MRI imaging or, or when you would so, pull the trigger and what you'd be looking for? Yeah. So a lot of the times if I have normal radiographs but I'm concerned potentially for some soft tissue injury, specifically in the wrist, uh, less so over the like the radial side. I usually kind of hold and do some conservative treatment and management before jumping to a wrist MRI. I think a lot of providers in our in our field in our community would. Some things that potentially could be concerning um, would be like uh, injury to the TFCC which is the triangulofibrocartilage complex on the ulnar side of the wrist. And essentially, if there is a tear or an injury there, sometimes that could require more specialized treatment care. There's tons of different ways to approach that as well. But again, that's ulnar sided pain. If I have athletes who have a subluxation of a tendon over like a bony process, that could be worthwhile imaging to evaluate for tendon tear or things like that. And then again, just addressing any major laxity. So if I know they're an athlete who has chronic overuse, weight-bearing, high impact on these structures, we as human beings were not made to do that. So we are not built to weight-bear on our hands. We do incredible things and we do that. But as, as a function, that's something we put a lot more stress and load and therefore can sustain a lot more injuries in those structures. And so a low threshold for a lot of laxity within the wrist. But like I said, it's sometimes hard to feel on exam. And so if, if I have athletes that are not improving with, you know, my conservative plan where I think they should be, I reach for that MRI a lot sooner. But if I have a normal radiograph and they don't have any concerning like locking, subluxation of a tendon or things like that, I usually hold on an MRI right away. I'm doing some other things, some physical therapy or even some home exercises, some bracing, see if there's something that I can do to improve the pain. But if they've got some of those mechanical symptoms that I'm worried about, functionality of the wrist or potentially something that would benefit from an, a surgical procedure sooner rather than later, that's when I'm jumping to get an MRI because I know that could make a big impact, especially in the hands. Hands are important. Hands and wrists are important. So you want to make sure that you're not making a decision that could potentially affect long-term health of that joint. And so it's a lot easier for us to reach for some of these images when we know that could be the impact. So I just love TFCC. Next time I hear someone, with <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm going to look pensively towards the corner of the room and say, oh, have we considered that the TFCC and people are going to think I'm so cool. Could be TFCC. TFCC. I'm going to be a little bit more nervous about ulnar pain now. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be, right. oh, well, crap. It can be. And you'll know um, that's a, it's a pretty beefy 
complex, hence the last C in, in its name, but because it's a mixture of ligaments and some cartilage structures as well. And you'll know because there's a lot of mechanical symptoms that come with oh, an injury of that. They'll get locking and grinding and popping. I've, I've seen a couple athletes, some gymnasts with it. A lot of the time they suffered with gymnast wrist prior to this development. And that's because mm. that ulna maybe overgrew and it caused a lot of compression mm. in that TFCC and potential tear. Gymnast wrist can be a precursor to that. And I've seen this in a lot of Olympic style weightlifters. So as mm. they're kind of kind of doing those heavy Olympic set type lifts, there's a lot of high impact and rotational force through the wrist that can cause some of these injuries. And it essentially limits their ability to compete, which is devastating. So you you want to make sure if you're potentially suspicious for something like that, again, either send that to a sports provider or talk with another specialist because some additional imaging may be worthwhile. And then you've said, you know, heavy, heavy weightlifters, powerlifting, um, gymnasts putting their whole body weight on their their hands. Are we suspicious or should we be a little bit suspicious about some of these for other athletes who are using their hands, but may, might not be putting the same amount of force or weight, a golfer or a basketball player, things like that. That's a really good question. So golfers, basketball players, like the other types of overhead athletes do get wrist injuries. Thankfully, I would say not to the extent of overuse stress injury to the growth plate. That's, I think, really unique to athletes that do a lot of weight bearing, but they can get certainly some tendonitis and some overuse of some of those muscle tendinous structures. Um weightlifters, those types of athletes, again, just high rotational force. I would be worried, again, more bone and uh, tendonitis. The the thing I think that maybe some people ignore or forget are also like cheerleaders. Cheerleaders do a lot of weight bearing and people put their weight on their hands. So if they're stunting or lifting and things, so they're a very unique skill set. And so considering those types of things and what they're doing, it may, it may seem like simple cheerleading to a lot of people, but a lot of these athletes, again, you know, are doing high level impact weight bearing skills on typically undesirable surfaces. So the grass, a track, a basketball court, you know, and they're doing all these incredible things and carrying the full body weight of some of their teammates too. So they take a brutal kind of beating to these wrists as well. And so the, these are things not to um, ignore either or kind of push aside. So in, I think, in my high school, the cheerleaders were never ignored. No one was ignored. <laughs> never the like that. They, yeah. This is not a, a cheer Netflix Navarro, you yeah. know, special. None of that. <laughs> That's some um, intense stuff, yeah. let me tell you. It is. Those documentaries are, are overwhelming. They're incredible. Yeah. Um, I think this is really helpful. And it sounds like, you know, the MRI is really trying to identify when surgical intervention is part of treatment, especially for these uh, exams where you have the subluxation of a tendon or you have some increased laxity or, or functionality that demonstrates something has more urgency. For the, the patient we have now who either has maybe a normal x-ray or an x-ray where we feel like we have an understanding of what's going on, can we talk a little bit about what the conservative treatment is, what treatment for gymnast wrist is in this case, but also just more broadly, if presuming someone is not in a long chronic state or does not have something where 
we're worried about surgical intervention. What can we do to, to get them back to, to sport or back to full function? So typically what I usually try when they come into my clinic first is some level of rest. And whether that is rest from a specific skill that causes pain, um, whether that is just complete rest, it's very dependent on what they, they come. And I try to listen to, because again, I have thankfully the training in the background to ask them specifically about what skills are bothering them and I can adjust and modify in the gym for them. It's important for these gymnasts to not miss training time. And so if they're complaining of wrist pain, they will ask me if they can still work on their leaps or their jumps or other skills where they don't have to use their arms or work on some tumbling skills that don't require the use of their arms. And so they are very dedicated. And so it's important for me to listen to what exactly is causing some pain and see how I can get them to still participate in the gym, but be super conscious and safe about not making this injury worse. And so that is usually some component of it. The other component that could be helpful is some type of bracing. And you can, again, this is a lot of variety of what you can do here. And so that's bracing with a Velcro splint. It could be bracing or immobilization with a cast. A lot of times we jokingly in our community say we have to cast our gymnasts when we make this diagnosis because we want to try to limit their temptation to put weight Mm. through this wrist in order to truly get some rest. And it's because we want to make sure that they don't feel pressured by their coaches a lot of time if they're not wearing something like a cast or a brace or something like that. It's hard to set those expectations for a young kid against their coach that, hey, I, I have this thing going on and I was told I can't do this. And so sometimes, you know, they're just out there to train and, you know, potentially make sure they're doing the right things. And so they may not speak up for themselves every time and they may sneak in a couple skills here and there because they want to make sure that they're keeping up with their teammates or, you know, making sure they're doing what the coaches are saying. So sometimes we're put in a position where the immobilization, of course, will help with pain but it also more just serves a purpose of protecting the athlete against themselves and some of the other stressors that may be coming from their training. And it gives us an opportunity to truly know that they've been resting that joint as they're supposed to. So some type of immobilization kind of under the umbrella of rest is can be potentially helpful, of course, for gymnastics, but for some other things as well. So like some tendonitis, depending on the diagnosis, if it is like some type of tendonitis, I will usually, if they don't get casted and we choose a Velcro splint, I usually will be a little aggressive early on with how we immobilize or protect or splint this. And that's usually because some full-time bracing is a little more helpful, especially nighttime bracing. You have these kids that kind of sleep very awkwardly in different positions and sometimes may compress over their wrist or certain things that can cause or increase some pain. And so using a brace while they're sleeping can, you know, potentially keep that safe where they don't have to think about it consciously. And then, you know, their activities during the day could be helpful. Other things to help with pain are, you know, good old ice. Ice is always helpful for any inflammation, some immediate pain relief and anti-inflammatories. So those are kind of more immediate how can I potentially make this stop or make this feel better right away? Thinking about long term, uh, typically recovery from something like gymnast risk can take several months. And that's a 
between the resting process, the potentially recovery strengthening process, and then return to sport. So that's something that's really important that we try to tell our athletes up front is, you know, this this is going to be a process, but ultimately the long-term benefit for your joint health is going to surpass anything else. And you're going to be able to overcome this and compete again because you don't want this to limit your career this year or potentially for your lifetime for your sport. And so it's it's important to let them know up front because sometimes it, they feel the need to plan and prepare for their season. And so typically it can take anywhere between three and four months. During that time, it's a four to six week rest period to allow the joint to become pain-free and hopefully allow some of that sclerosis and inflammation to go away completely. Then it's a strengthening process of the wrist. And it's not only limited to the wrist as a as an athlete who does weight bearing on her extremities, we have to look at the balance of mobility, flexibility, and strength in the entire upper extremity. So looking at shoulders, looking at upper back, you know, we have some athletes who potentially have more wrist pain because their shoulder motion is limited. And so when they're doing handstands or back handsprings or things like that, they tend to hyper kind of extend or dorsiflex that wrist and that causes a lot of pain and a lot of issues. And so if we can address the things more proximal and upstream, we have more success maintaining a pain-free wrist in their progression. And so we're very fortunate that we have very highly trained sports physical therapists and a lot of uh, we have two here with a background in gymnastics who understand the mechanics of some of these tumbling skills and the importance of looking at the entire range of motion of that skill in order to really promote a successful healing and recovery and return to sport without any setbacks. So we're very fortunate to have that here at Cincinnati Children's. And so that is usually step two. And then step three, once they're pain-free, their strength, their mobility is appropriate, and we know it's safe for them to return back to gymnastics. It's usually about a four to six week return to gymnastics stepwise program. And we've concocted here again with work with our sports physical therapists here at Cincinnati Children's, almost essentially a chart or a phase where we've broken down per event what would be an appropriate skill or activity to do to recover and return back from this injury so that they have Gymnasts tend to be very type A and they need a lot of good specific directions and instructions. And so if you can outline in a chart format for them, you know, what specific skills they're allowed to do during that training session, they have a much more enjoyable and relaxed training session knowing that my doctor has outlined this for me and my coaches can follow it. I can follow it and we're going to follow the rules and things are going to go well and my recovery is going to go great. So that's kind of our, we've got three different phases um, in that recovery process. And that's why it takes, you know, sometimes three or four months to get the athlete back fully to feel like they're prepared to compete and do the skills they need to do. That's really surprising that it takes so long, but it makes sense when you, when you lay it out like that. One of the things that surprised me the most is your stronger recommendation of splinting. I also really loved that tidbit about focusing on the entire upper extremity and realizing that other things could be going on. I think that'd be a yeah. great transition to, to talk about the shoulder, if you don't mind. For sure. Let's do it. Awesome. So your shoulder case is now starting in summer. You've got a 12-year-old baseball player who presents to clinic with right shoulder pain. He points to the side of his shoulder as the location of the pain and report it really hurts most with throwing. He's a pitcher and occasionally also plays third base for both school and a club team. He reports that his coaches adhere to pitch count rules. 
He denies any numbness, tingling, or weakness in his shoulder or arm. Your athlete says the pain started in late May, and he can't think of a specific moment in time when it started, but it's definitely worsened since then. He's got a pretty normal exam. No swelling or redness over the joint. He does have tenderness to palpation over that humeral epiphysis. He's got 4 out of 5 strength on abduction, flexion, and extension. He can do that empty can test, and then that infraspinatus test, but he's got just a little bit of weakness on both. So what are your immediate concerns? Where do we go from here? Yeah, so things that stick out to me from the script or what I'm hearing from the story or the summary is the location of pain. So the location of pain is really important. Again, we talk about anatomy and the structures we know to find within this specific joint. The shoulder joint is very unique. It's a ball socket joint, right? So we only have two of those in our body, but it comes with its own unique potential injuries and concerns as well. The second thing that sticks out to me is playing for multiple teams in one season. So again, this is falling under our category of overuse. And secondly, which is a positive thing, is their adherence or even knowledge of pitch count. So that that makes me feel happy and feel good. Those are some things that we ask specifically of parents if they're aware, if their coaching staff or if their child follows these pitch count rules. And then finally, just thinking about um, the different, you know, on an exam, what are the areas of weakness and thinking about what what the actions are that correlate with the muscle groups that affect that and how that can potentially drive my evaluation and some other things on my differential diagnosis for this specific pain or this injury. So maybe diving into that, you know, for shoulder injuries, we talked about the differential for wrist pain. What are kind of the the same differentials you're approaching? What are the exam maneuvers that you're trying to guide through to one mm-hmm. differential? And um, what, same, you know, imaging of what, what are the things where it's like, this means imaging. This is why that's an important exam finding yeah. or a different thing in the differential. So again, palpation, although a great exam tool, may not be as specific in the shoulder either. I think it's interesting when an athlete presents with proximal lateral shoulder pain. I know the growth plate is, it lives in that area, but so do all the attachments for the rotator cuff muscles. So that's difficult to discern sometimes, uh, especially in a younger kid who who's very vague about their description about where their pain is. And so essentially, I break it down very similarly. I know there's potential for bony injury here. There's potential for muscle or tendinous injury here. Uh, Less likely, you know, kind of specifically in the spot where he's complaining about is there ligament. There's really no ligament injury. But if I focus more on the whole shoulder joint, there are some ligaments that are deep within the glenohumeral joint that could be affected. And then cartilage. There is essentially a rim or a ring of cartilage that lives, again, more within the actual shoulder joint space that I would need to worry about. And that's potentially the labrum. Uh, So for this athlete, just with clinical context clues from the history and some of the things on the exam findings, I already know maybe my more top two things on my differential are going to be a bone type injury, in this case, a growth plate injury versus a muscle slash tendon rotator cuff injury. So those are the top two versus a labral tear or some other ligament injury within the joint itself. 
It seems like one of the themes of pediatric sports medicine really is those growth plates are just a pain in the butt. And it's it's the right yeah. time, right? So if I have a 20-year-old coming in, you know, one of my collegiate baseball players, I know they don't have an open growth plate, Not so I'm dealing with a rotator plate. cuff, you know, Beautiful. until proven otherwise. And that potentially drives the type and style and aggressiveness with imaging, you sure. know, more so than not, especially with these older athletes. I know they've been playing baseball since they've been six, you know, so they, they have 14 years of stress on this rotator cuff and it's definitely worthwhile to evaluate in more detail and just kind of see if there's anything, again, any potential surgical intervention could be beneficial for this athlete just thinking long term. Yeah, it ends up cutting maybe a season short or something like that. But ultimately, I always talk about long term joint health for these kids because yes, they are a division one athlete, but there's so much more than that. There's so much that they can do outside of what they do for baseball and or any other sport. And so we want to make sure that they live a healthy life outside of this, you know, potential stage in their life. So this 12 year old that, you know, exam is kind of point you're still kind of hazy on your differential then this is someone am I right to say we should probably get a film on this one and then this is the one where I really have a big question about what film do I order yeah great question am I I getting the like into the armpit x-ray view (laughs) exactly uh so yeah so the views to order for this essentially is a regular AP view a Y view and an axillary view And essentially the difference between those is like external and internal rotation of the joint. So again, you're taking a 3D structure and trying to recreate as much of that as you can using 2D imaging. And so you can get some really nice views of the physis, just even just with a regular AP view. The Y view and the axillary view, those potentially could be more helpful if you're concerned for more intraarticular pathology. So you're trying to also look at the humerus, the head of the humerus, and see if there's any potential bony trauma, injury, indentations, things like that, that could lead you to suspect a shoulder dislocation or potentially other intraarticular pathology positioning (laughs) of the shoulder. And so essentially is the humerus within the joint. And so making sure that you don't have an active shoulder dislocation. So these images can be really helpful for that uh, and getting full views, but it's not unreasonable to do a full series, even though you can get a really good view to answer your visceral stress injury question with just an AP view. And can I go back, not to go back too much to exam, but the, you know, empty beer can test, we're checking for rotator cuff maneuvers. Do you have insight into you know, the best way to do some of these maneuvers, I feel like often I'll have a shoulder injury, I'll have them do the the wing test, the the empty Mm -hmm. beer can test, the get arrested, the touchdown test. And like some of them kind of hurt and some don't. And then um, it could be a rotator cuff. And I feel like, you know, how are you approaching these? Is there one exam that you feel like is more specific or sensitive? Or if any of them are concerning, are you just saying, we got to do an MRI because I'm concerned about a rotator cuff? It's actually the way that I kind of look at it or the way I organize it in my mind. It's I do kind of like why we talked about the knee, you know, even though I think you have Oshkid Schlatter's, I'm checking your ACL. Even though I think you have, you know, a physeal injury, I'm checking everything on your exam, you know, from muscles to tendons. And it's because there are lots of tests that I feel 
could explain certain pathology, it's difficult. So I use more of a general consensus of, okay, you had more rotator cuff tests that were positive, but you had maybe some that were also positive for labral pathology. So it's uh, essentially kind of big picture and looking at all these multiple tests, but you're right. A lot of these can potentially overlap. So think, and I think about it in muscle group and action. So when I document these, I have a specific smart phrase where I describe what I'm doing with the test and what it potentially could be affecting. So it's easy for me to remember that I performed that test and it's easy for other people to look and see specifically what I was looking for or what I was worried about if they're reviewing my documentation. So to your point, that wing test or that Hawkins-Kennedy test looks for impingement and pain in the supraspinatus muscle and tendon. The empty can test also looks at supraspinatus as well. Thinking about something, just a slight modification from like a wide 90 degree flexion internal rotation with some abduction of the arm and bringing that across to do a deduction changes your focus entirely and you're now stressing or testing the labrum. So just simple maneuvers. And it's hard to kind of put all those things together. It takes a lot of practice. If there are multiple tests that are positive and it kind of falls in a group of like rotator cuff pain or impingement, there, it kind of, I take kind of like, okay, there are more tests that are positive for this specific pathology, but I make note that there was also some pain with something like an O'Brien's test where I'm worried about, hey, maybe there was maybe a little trauma to this labrum. And so do I need to consider that for future if we're not improving with, again, typical standard conservative treatment? I don't jump to an MRI right away for rotator cuff pathology. And that's because children, young athletes, typically do not tear their rotator cuff, at least not fully or like an adult would. They may have some fraying or some tendinopathy and overuse, but usually I don't jump to an MRI right away to evaluate for rotator cuff pathology. This is my med-peds training coming in too much. and And it's normal in the adult world to do that. And a lot of times there's there's been potentially long history of injury and trauma where there has been a rotator cuff tear, a partial tear, and maybe they've developed some cysts because the joint was trying to repair itself and they failed and it's caused increased pressure and, and pain in the joint and they need a surgical procedure now to correct that. And so super common in the adult world, but in pediatrics, I jump less for a rotator cuff injury because thankfully they just don't tear those labrums, those those excite me a little more. And those I feel like if I'm concerned enough with the exam findings or the mechanism of injury, they told me they had a shoulder dislocation or, you know, potentially there was trauma to the joint in an awkward position. So a baseball player who slid into the base and like jammed their shoulder. I worry about that because there's immediate direct trauma in a joint that's really awkward (laughs) with a ball sitting in a cup that potentially can slide and stretch and cause damage to the labrum. And so if the tests are positive, the history makes sense, I jump more to evaluate for a labral tear versus a rotator cuff in the pediatric population. But don't get me wrong, I have seen some fraying or some partial tears to these rotator cuffs, but these kids get better without surgery. They don't usually need a surgical procedure. They they improve with some formal physical therapy um, and all the typical things we've talked about as far as recovery goes. If I am worried about a labral tear, I do an MRI, but it's a special MRI, an MRI arthrogram, 
which requires an injection of dye or contrast directly into the shoulder joint in order to illuminate or evaluate the labrum in much better detail. Because you can, especially if this is something more chronic that doesn't have active inflammation in the joint, you may be missing a labral tear if that's the case. And so usually the way I explain this to my families when they may be pushing more for an MRI and we bring up the concern for a possible labral injury and the requirements of evaluating that in a kind of more optimal gold standard type way. That's something I make sure that, you know, we're discussing and it's not a surprise to them because it's, it's an intervention certainly. And um, they can be uncomfortable, but kids tolerate that procedure actually really well. I'm really pleased and impressed with how well they do. (laughs) That's good. I think I still will defer the arthrogram to, to my specialist. Yeah, absolutely. So you do not feel like you need to be ordering an arthrogram. If you're worried and some of the things kind of strike, it's, uh, I got to send you to my sports doc and see what they think and potentially talk to you about that. So for our patient, it sounds like we are a little bit worried about the the pesky growth plate here. Can we talk a little bit about treatment, prevention, things we're doing for um, for our, our, our patient in this case? Yeah, this is this is a little more specific as far as injury prevention. And so USA Baseball and a lot of these groups came together to look at why these athletes were getting all of these injuries kind of within the shoulder. And they came up with data and information that suggested pitch count or the number of pitches or the number of throws that they did within a certain age group potentially put them at higher risk. Again, just with development because of the rotational force that is applied to the shoulder, specifically the proximal humeral physis and the stress and resulting stress injury that occurred from this. As kiddos get older, the shoulder injuries from a kind of stress lessen because types of pitches change and essentially they can get they can still get shoulder injuries but a lot of our older teenage into collegiate level get actually a lot more elbow injuries again similar idea the mechanism and force and pressure that's put through the joint the ways that we can essentially prevent progression or worsening of this type of injury is adhering to the specific pitch count rules and rest days that have been studied and recommended to athletes. And they have them for all different age groups. And we can talk about the specifics of that and what that looks like for each age group. But essentially, that's the case. The other less founded point is types of pitches. And so essentially, there's just one general recommendation out there in the literature is athletes who are still skeletally immature should avoid breaking balls type pitches. And that's because, again, of the style of deceleration as it approaches the pitcher, it's very finessed and that puts more rotational force on these joints and can cause some injury. So that that was just kind of the global recommendation. There's no specific ban on certain types of pitches. The, the way that this has been done, it's structured to be progressional, uh, very similar to like gymnastics. There's a, there's a, the reason that they have all those levels and what they do is to progress based off of development, skill attainment, that kind of thing. Similarly, the types of pitches or what you do and what you throw is based off of 
development skill and what you're able to show as you go through this process. And so essentially having someone like a pitching coach to supervise and look at mechanics and provide some feedback can be really helpful. Having good proper stretching and warm-up programs are super critical as far as making sure that you're doing everything you can to approach either a private pitching lesson or a game or what have you with your body being well warmed up and you're doing all the right things to kind of limit any potential, even acute injury, not necessarily an overuse injury. There's a lot of literature or chalk even between the athletes about arm care and what programs are looking like in order to provide good flexibility, mobility, strengthening, and stability of those joints in order to just maintain good arm health when they're not pitching because the recommendation is to at least one month, although we would prefer three (laughs) months of no pitching throughout the year in order to allow, again, for recovery, healing, those types of things from any injury moving forward. And um, making sure that if you do have pain, that you don't push through pain. We have some guidelines. Any athlete that visits our sports physical therapy group, uh, we call them soreness guidelines. And so it's very difficult sometimes for these athletes to differentiate between soreness and pain. And so this is a key moment in their lives where they get to learn about that and Uh, we get to educate them on what are some serious symptoms or findings and when is it okay to work through some soreness but not push through pain. And so we work on a lot of that with these kids because that's a hard skill to develop when you're playing a sport, especially in a sport that again is high, you know, high demand and expects a lot of their athletes, especially if they're really good at what they do. But it sounds like part of this conversation is really partnering with them and saying, hey, our goal is for you to perform at the highest level you can too. And here are some ways that you can do that in a healthy way. If we take care of your arm, if we recover from, from injury well, you'll probably be better off in the long run. You'll you know, have a you know, higher probability of a successful return. About how long would you say these kids stay out of, of sports after an overuse injury? Or does it just depend on the severity of the injury and That's a great question. And so on average, we see typically or we recommend or we kind of upfront tell these patients and families they'll probably be out of sport for about three to four months, similar kind of phase of recovery because we need to allow allow the growth plate to decrease and cease essentially any sclerosis or inflammation that's occurring at the joint. We need to focus again on strengthening and mechanics. Um, The baseball throw or the baseball pitch is a very intricate skill and you have to sometimes evaluate it in different phases. So thinking all the way from the wind up to the release, there are different things to consider and potentially if an athlete can identify some pain points based on the specific phase of their pitch, we can actually localize what structure or what is being affected or what is being stressed the most, anywhere from a growth plate to a ligament or a muscle or tendon. And so that's a huge component of a return to athletics or sport, especially for throwing. Then it's a return to throw program. So on on average, it can take three to four months. Sometimes it can take kids longer. But I think if they're well-established with a well-trained 
sports physical therapy group, they're in good hands and they're going to be able to make a proper return without any major setbacks. I have a, a follow-up question of kind of bringing all of our cases together. And, you know, this patient, little lead shoulder or a proximal humeral growth plate injury. And a lot of the examples we talked about in the prior episode and this one um, focus around some of the growth plate injuries that are important in pediatric sports medicine. They're overuse injuries. They have some physical exam findings, but it does seem like radiograph imaging can help us find a lot of these. It might be sclerosing of the physis or some other unique finding. Is it safe to say that you know one of the big takeaway points is not to forget growth plate pathologies and that imaging, x-ray imaging can usually help identify them or or are there some, uh, is it easy to miss on, on x-ray? Like, are, is that a safe plan of x-ray imaging can kind of help to catch these growth plate uh, pathologies that we don't want to miss? Is that right? They certainly can. So I would say absolutely. As, as long as a child is skeletally immature, they have not started to go through puberty, growth plate injuries have to be at the top of your list. Uh, in, in our field, or at least when I talk to my families, I tell them it's the weakest link. It's the part that's growing and developing the most quickly and potentially is most susceptible to injury, depending on whatever sport or activities that they're doing. The radiographs can certainly help drive a point home for certain joints, I think. There are certain joints that we don't necessarily need to have imaging for. And so I think looking at our two episodes of lower extremity injuries versus upper extremity injuries, I am more likely to grab a film of an upper extremity growth plate injury versus a lower extremity growth plate injury. To wrap up, you know, um, other resources for our listeners to, to check out? Anything that you'd like to plug? Anything that you think might be of interest to, to people who want to learn more about sports medicine or gymnastics? Yeah, gymnastics is incredible. Um, so it's quite a, it's definitely a unique sport. It's a unique organization. And so uh, if you're interested in learning more or just learning in general more about what these levels are, the rigor of competition, the code of points, the skills. It's a fascinating sport. You can definitely go check uh, USA Gymnastics, their website. They do a really nice job of breaking down the different programs and potentially the different training expectations and progression for your little gymnast if they're interested in either becoming a collegiate gymnast or a junior Olympian, whatever that may be, and can kind of direct you to that path. As far as other sports medicine resources, I don't have a specific one that I uh, utilize. I Like I, we talked about last time, I always have some anatomy resource with me because I like to show my patients and families pictures of the anatomy. It, it makes a lot of sense to them when I can put it in the context and show them a picture and describe, you know, potentially some of the actions of the muscles or, you know, the actual growth play or looking at those things. And so having a handy dandy resource of some type of anatomy, I usually like to pull up a lot of images on the internet and show families and we go over things together just because it's quick and what's in the room. But if you have a pocketbook kind of anatomy tool that you can kind of whip out and show patients and families some visuals and some pictures, it's really helpful. Awesome. This has been amazing. Another another excellent episode in the books. We are, we are very grateful for your expertise and your time. 
thank you for coming on to the Cribsiders, teaching us about sports medicine, getting excited about um, treating injuries. We really appreciate your being here. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm looking forward to maybe a part three. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Brian Ward and Dr. Cole Papakorikos, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. This has been Cole Papakorikos. And this has been Brian Ward. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode. Thank you.